NIV, NASB, or Christian Standard. And I think you have the New King James, but I'm not sure, uh, Cousin Tim. Cindy, what did you read out of tonight? ASV and Bonnie, what did you read out of? <laughs> okay. Harv, what did you read out of? Okay. Um, yeah, it's, this is, a, as I told you guys two weeks ago, this is by some commentators referred to this as, as the, the, probably the darkest chapter in the book which to me is interesting because it comes on the heels of verses 18 through 20 in chapter 5. Where 18 through 20 in chapter 5 says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Okay, what is his reward? It is good and fitting to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself and one's labors, in which he labors under the sun, right? That's what it's talking about. Furthermore, so he goes on, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also given him the opportunity to enjoy them. So now we're going to see the contrast in verse 1 of chapter 6, right? He's given him the opportunity to enjoy them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he will not often call to mind the years of his life because God has kept him busy with the joy of his heart. So to me, verse 20 is fascinating because when you are preoccupied, for lack of a better term, when you're preoccupied with the joys of life or the joys of your heart, often I think it is that you don't always then think very deeply about things and think very deeply about life because you're too busy or you're too focused on just enjoying the goodness of life, which to me, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that's pretty normal. Um, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to people, to Christians, or people, even non-Christians, is for them to experience an overabundance of uh, prosperity. Um, and, and even the proverb says that, you know, don't make me poor, that I would be robbing, don't make me rich, that I would, you know, I would forget my God. And, and so um, part of this chapter, especially the, the last couple of verses, they're really written in the form of a proverb, um, which we'll get at in a bit. But I think when we go through difficult times, it causes us to think a little deeper. And causes us to um, really give greater thought to the things that are important in life. A lot of artists are, suffer from depression. And even musicians, uh, those who do a lot of writing, um, they suffer from that. And it causes them to be able to write, to rethink, to reflect, uh, rethink, but to think, reflect, 
and, and help them to think a little bit deeper. So what's interesting, though, is, is again, verse 19, for every uh, person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he also gives him uh, or has given him the opportunity to enjoy them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. Verse 1 flips that whole idea on its head. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is widespread, actually it's verse 2, excuse me, and is widespread among mankind, a person to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things, but a foreigner enjoys them. A foreigner. Um, Some of your versions have something different than a foreigner. Um, Stranger. Stranger. the thought on that is referring to Gentiles, but that may or may not be the case. I, I, don't, I don't think that the text is clear enough uh, to really help us out. So why do we have that huge flip? We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago. But why do we have that huge flip? What are your thoughts about that? Why is there such a drastic change in verse 19 in chapter 5 from verse 2 in chapter 6? That's possible, but you could backtrack into verse 18 of chapter 5 where it says uh, one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. So it could be, it, though still I, I see the point you're making, Cindy, and it could be that one is a more of a heavenly reflection perspective and the other is more of an earthly perspective. It could also be that it is two sides of the coin, and it's really a calling for us to start to work through. Tim, what did you say? You said something to the effect of us making up our own mind, right? Seeing both sides of, of a situation. So there's this idea of, of uh, attempting to balance, because I, I think it's, we can... And I know guys who do this as they interpret Scripture, where they see things in such a black or white um, framework that 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 becomes an error in and of itself because everything is one extreme or the other. And life really doesn't work that way. Um, we will experience both extremes, will we not? I think we will. I think many people have. Um, even if it's not an extreme on your scale of what an extreme is, right? You, you, you've, you've, you've experienced enough bad and good in life, right? So I, I think part of that, this is part of our call to wisdom, looking up instead of looking at the earth, but at the same time recognizing that these things uh, can happen to all of us. Now, Jesus uses the example, and he's not really using this example, but the man who, who um, decides he's going to build bigger barns, right? And he had an increase, and so he's going to tear down his barns and be- build bigger barns and, and uh, so that he can take leisure 
And then Jesus says that, you fool, tonight your soul has been required of you. And so that could play into how we're looking at chapter 6, or the first part of chapter 6, because God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things. Now, why would God do that? God gives you the gift or the ability to work hard, to earn a lot, to be very prosperous, and then he denies you the opportunity to enjoy it. And here it says God has not given him the opportunity. So God has taken responsibility here. Whether that's in every situation and in every case, I don't know. I think because we're getting into areas that are above all of our pay grades, I think. But why would God deny someone that opportunity? We didn't put him first. That's a possibility. And it could be a form of, of... whom God loves, he chastens. And so that could be part of God's corrective action. I, I remember, and I've told you guys this before, but I remember when, um, and I'm not a fan of him at all. Um, trying to think of his name. Jim Baker. You guys remember Jim Baker? And he, he, he just, he, he was a thief. And he, he just swindled people out of millions and he had that amusement park and, uh, you know, all of that stuff, right? So he ends up going, he gets charged, and he gets 42 years. You guys remember that? He got 42 years. And I, I remember thinking that was so unfair that he got that many years. Uh, and I, I didn't like him. Didn't like him then. I don't really care for him now, okay? But I remember thinking about it. And I was talking with a guy at work, and he was rather Pentecostal. And, and, you know, but he, he also got very black and white on me. Uh, well, yeah, because judgment begins at the house of God. And Well, yes, it does. We all know that. But I'm thinking this guy probably started out in the ministry with best of intentions. Probably. Now, his theology was something I wouldn't give two wooden nickels for, Okay. Probably not even when he began. But nonetheless, I'm thinking he probably started out with the best of intentions and then he ends up in a place where the, the justice uh, and judgment comes upon him and he was going to serve 42 years. He would still be in prison today if he had had... Uh, and I don't remember what happened, but he got, he got, he got out rather quickly. Um, and... So here he, he amassed this huge fortune, and then he wasn't able to consume it anymore. And it was, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, he went nuts. Yeah, and the whole the demon thing in the courtroom, and, of course, then you got Tammy Faye crying, and, yeah. It, you know, it's like, here comes the church. Somebody cue up the bozo theme song, you know? I mean, it's like, for goodness sake. But anyway, um, 
but it, it's part of it is the recognition that, that God's ways are mysterious. And they are at times, and I think probably more often than not, they're beyond our understanding. And they, they, they don't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and that's really what we, we see here as, as this, um, this chapter starts to unfold. Is it, it talks about our desires and then the lack of fulfillment of those desires. It's what most of this chapter is about. And, and then, you know, the idea of vanity and, and um, futility and that it is, this is a severe affliction uh, or an evil affliction. Um, and, and then the, the, these, these comparisons that he gets in here uh, and talks about of, of uh, if a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, how many, uh, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not have a proper burial, then I say better is the miscarriage than he. And so it, really he, he, he's giving some pretty um, extreme scenarios. And he's saying that the, the, the child that was miscarried who never lived life was better off than the, than, than the, uh, the man who had many, many children but was not satisfied. So, and, and it's... Because to me, as I thought about this, I thought about that wayward prophet, Mick Jagger, um, who used to sing, I can't get no satisfaction. And, um, and how often it is that we seek to obtain something or achieve something or hit some type of a goal or milestone, and then all of a sudden we hit a plateau. In other words, we're not we're not striving toward anything anymore. So it's it's almost you know you know the, you know the expression the donkey and the carrot. I've talked about that before. Where you take a stick, you tie it to the neck of a donkey, and extend the stick in front of them, and dangle the carrot in front of them, and they keep walking because they're trying to get the the, the the carrot. And so, but all of a sudden we plateau. There's no more carrot to chase after. And and often it is. I I've, I've seen people that it's like they're looking around looking for the next carrot in life because they're not satisfied with where they're at. And there's, there's always that, that, that desire for more. One of the, one of the books, um, the first book that I started out in my doctoral program, which was really a good book. I felt like I, I could have graduated after I read the book. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a quick quote out of it. The book is called Holy Longing, the Search for Christian Spirituality by a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, who was a Roman Catholic. Um, but I think he's really on to some good things here. Um, he writes, Inside of us, it would seem, something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. And I think part of that is, I, don't want to, I do want to pick on TV, just because, anyway, because commercials on television or on the internet or on the radio or on Twitter, I don't know if Twitter has commercials, anyway, um, their desired, commercials are designed to do what? 
What's that? Make you want stuff. Spend money. They want your money. And they try to create inside of you a desire for that. You know, it's, um, try to think of some of the best. Well, Super Bowl. And some of those commercials. Because media, any kind of media, I think, is attempting to reshape your own personal culture, your own focus, and to get you to think, I need this. Yeah, you get bombarded with it. But, but if you grow up in that environment, it, becomes, it is what? It's normal. It's normal. So, you know, I mean, um, so desire, it, and then he, he finishes up. He says, desire is, this is probably the best part of this little piece to read. Desire is always stronger than satisfaction. I thought, boy, he was on to something when he wrote that. Holy longing, Ronald Rollheiser. Um, so, it's part of who we are. I think, to a degree, it's part of how God made us. Because we have a holy longing, hopefully. We have a holy desire, hopefully. We, Paul said he strived toward the upward prize of the calling in Christ Jesus. I think it's Philippians 3. So there, there's, there is that part of us that isn't satisfied, and I think we're made perhaps not necessarily to be satisfied, uh, and yet blessed are the hungry for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But maybe not right away. I don't know, the more I think about the Beatitudes, the more they fascinate me. I think there's so much there in them. Um, and so, essentially, and we, we even see this in, in, in chapter 5, verse 10. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor one who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. So there's always the striving for more, more, and more. He's really kind of building on that theme. Um, and then, you know, even if a man lives a thousand years twice, so two thousand years, but does not see good things, uh, do not all go to one and the, and the same place. He's comparing the, the, um, the miscarried child with the man who lives for two thousand years. They both end up in the same place. Which is interesting, though, that if they end up in the same place, I think this is another verse that it says, at least to some degree, it, it talks of, now it could, that place could be a reference to the grave, but it could be a reference to um, entering into eternity with God. It's a little unclear in verse 6. But that would tell me the miscarried child enters into the eternity with God. 
that the miscarried child goes to the same place that the person who lives for years and years and years. They have the same fate. And I, I, what I find interesting in this passage, too, is that uh, the miscarried child, he's, he's treating him like a person, I think. Because I believe he, my personal belief is, and how I see the Bible, is that life begins at conception. He's treating him like a person because he is a person. Um, anyway, verse 7. It says, all a person's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Um, some of you who have a new King James, I think it says, his soul is not satisfied. Um, the ESV, I think, says appetite. Christian Standard Bible says appetite. New American Standard Bible Yeah, so they so this I so I dug into this word appetite. I got curious. Um, it's found in the words. It's the word suke, which is a p s u c h e, and it can be translated appetite. Most often, it is translated soul. And. I think because we're talking about a person's labor is for his mouth, the ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard, all went with the word appetite. Again, it's, it's an accurate translation, but I, I wonder if soul might not be a better translation, which, again, it's... Um, because what you have in Psalm 107, verse 9, it says, talks about God. It says, for he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. So while Ecclesiastes 6 is really the context is about someone eating physical food, right? It's a physical context. Is this also about a spiritual laboring? and a spiritual eating, or a spiritual appetite. Um, it, it's, now, I got ahead of myself. I said the word is suke. That's the Greek word, not the Hebrew word. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew, Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, it uses the word suke here. And the word suke is a very, very, very broad um, word. Um, and one of the dictionaries that I looked at, and it, they went on forever about this word because it's used in various different circumstances and cases in not only the Bible but in ancient literature. And, and so it's, it's really often, it's difficult to, to draw a hard and fast line of what this word is really describing although often it is, it is translated, particularly in the New Testament, as soul. Um, it can even mean the breath of life, which is different than the Greek word pneuma. 
but it could refer to life or a life principle or a soul. Um, and it's referred to uh, uh, the, how the soul rules the human, um, the human beings in Genesis 35 and in First uh, Kings 17. Um, and when the soul leaves the body, same word again, Luke chapter uh, 12, verse 20, then, then uh, the body dies. Um, so it's the soul here is like the life on earth that, and that, that aspect of who we are, not physically, but immater- immaterially, that basically um, causes the body to function. So uh, to me, anthropology, which is the study of man, is fascinating. And I think there's, there's so much more to look at than some of the classical arguments that I'm not even going to bother to get into tonight. But one is particularly in this use of the word uh, soul. Because along with the soul, which I found interesting, why did they uh, translate this appetite? Well, Plato, so here's some ancient Greek philosophy for you, for what it's worth or not. And I don't know that there, I don't think there was any kind of a conversation between Solomon and the Greeks. And this was written about 600 years before Plato. But Plato identified the soul of man having three parts. One of them was the appetitive, the appetitive part of the soul. The other was the reasoned, the one that's part of the soul that reasons, which is engaged with what? The mind. And then there is the spirited part of the soul, which in, it really more in, in the one who engages with, the, with, the, with the, uh, the things that are of immaterial value, or I, what I like to use the word tr- things that transcend our material world things that go beyond the material world. And the, the, the appetitive soul was concerned with two things, um, the table and the bed. It was all about feeding the body. And so um, that may have played in here why uh, it says the person's labor is for his mouth and yet his appetite or his appetitive soul is not satisfied. I don't know if the translators thought of that or not. Um, when they wrote about the soul here um, or the appetite here in verse 7. So, um, so it, it, to me, it, it's, it's kind of a... It feels like a very vain thing because he's talking about someone laboring for that which he eats uh, but their appetite's not satisfied, or their soul's not satisfied, and he doesn't say why. Again, I, th- I, I like what you said, Cousin Tim, because th- I think these things are put here for us to give some thought to. And we had, we had a couple of different answers when, when I asked earlier, right? Which one was right? I think both of them were, depending on, again, with your engagement with this type of literature, particularly, I think, I think it's written in such a way that I think it, that the Holy Spirit allows us to have some license for more of a personal application. 
And, um, you know, that's my, at least that's my take on this. Um, So, then it asks, for what advantage does the wise person have over the fool? What does the poor person have knowing how to walk before the living? Those are tough questions. Now, these are almost like Proverbs. This is where he starts getting into, he's writing these things that are really like, like a proverb. Um, and he's transitioning from this discussion of wealth that really began back in chapter 5, verse 10, which I read to you earlier, and really ends at about chapter 6, verse 6. Again, the chapters and verses are not divinely inspired, but you have really... I, I see the first part of chapter 6 tied in uh, with chapter 5. But now we're going to start to talk about wisdom, and it's really kind of given to us in a series of Proverbs. And we looked the first one. The first one is, you know, again, verse 7. Um, a person's labor is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Is with the toil being an earthly function, which it is, uh, the soul would be more of a, we could say heavenly, right, spiritual. Um, and that is one way to look at it. Um, the thing about working is that, and now, now of course Paul says this, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right now, that was before the days of pensions and Social Security and all that, right? And I understand that, right? Um, and there is something, again, the back half of chapter 5 really talks about it, it you know, laboring and then enjoying. Um, but God gives this to him for his reward. So there is also something very holy about what we do here, about what, we, about what our toil is on earth. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you do. I don't, I don't think that certain jobs are of more, and more spiritual importance than the others. I think, I think whatever it is that you do, is, you do as unto the Lord. And, and I think that is our, our calling. Um, and, and so, um, but I, as I was thinking about this too, is because I can work a hard day. I think I did one time back in, in I think it was 2004. No. Anyway, I, I, wor- I can work a hard day, come home, eat a great dinner, and wake up the next morning, and what's the first thing you might want to do in the morning? Well, maybe not the first thing, but anyway. <laughs> you want breakfast. It's part of our cycle, isn't it? In other words... That which we do, we can only extract satisfaction from for just a short period of time. All right, let me back that up. 
we can only extract satisfaction from for just a period of time. You fill in your own duration. Because there are sometimes I eat so much at night that I wake up the next morning and I don't want anything to eat. That happened back in 2005, I think, <laughs> anyway. But, um, so we're, don't you think we're kind of built this way? Follow where I'm going with this, because this is, this is just kind of coming to me almost sentence by sentence. Like I said, this is hard stuff to think through. If we're built this way, it becomes our what? Habit. I don't think habit as in a bad habit. Just It becomes our pattern. It is what we do. The funny thing about it is that Normally, on a Wednesday night particularly, you guys are all sitting where you normally sit. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's part of your pattern, right? The funny thing is because everybody does it. Um, There was a time that people were fighting over the back row. I thought that was kind of funny too. Um, And they all came in late. And then when the guys who who really, like, lived on the back row... I remember one time they came in late and the back row was filled. They didn't know what to do with themselves, but they stayed anyway. um, But because it's our pattern, it can also easily become something that we lose awareness of because we're on automatic mode. And then we are really going through the motions of life rather than walking circumspectly considering the days because the or walking circumspectly because the days are evil as Paul said in the New Testament it's a good thing you have the weekly patterns you have the moons and the suns the monthly patterns, you have the seasonal patterns, you have the yearly patterns. I mean, it's how God has created the universe. It's not a bad thing. But like anything, when it becomes a pattern, we can begin to lose our awareness of it. See, that's, that's, that's the, the only thing I'm really trying to... Why are, why are we coming to church? Yeah. Yeah, or not even the why as, this is going to sound weird. I am coming to church. I'm aware of the fact that I'm going to go and hopefully God's going to speak to me and I'm going to hopefully be encouraged and hopefully encourage others. And I'm going to worship. We're going to take communion. And, and we're going to participate in the life of the church for yet another week. Which hopefully will refuel me so that I can walk through the rest of the week. And just being aware of all that. Does that make sense? We have a tendency to become very self-focused and therefore yet his soul. Okay, we'll go there. Yet his soul is not satisfied. If I'm aware of that. 
if I'm aware of my built-in dissatisfaction, I can take that to the Lord. So you're interpreting this as there's more to a person's labor than just the food he's going to eat or she's going to eat. And, and so while the labor is important, right? But there's more to your life than just finishing up a work day so that you can go home and have dinner. Essentially. Yeah, and that's, a, that's another aspect of this, I think, to, to, that's a good observation as well to extract from this. And it goes back again to awareness because did we have to work at one time? We all did, right? And so that's important. If you don't work, you don't eat, right? But there's more to your day than just and, and the grinning and bearing it. Right? Some people have jobs that they absolutely hated, so they, they, they grinned, sort of, and bared it, right? Or they didn't grin at all. Or they absolutely just loved their job, and they found all their fulfillment of life in their job. So that's like the other extreme. But the, uh, what I think, Bill, what you're bringing out to is the neglect of the spiritual within the context of the physical. Yeah, Francis, otherwise known as St. Francis, but Francis of Assisi. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that later. But anyway, oh yeah, Francis the talking mole. Okay, um, but Francis b- believed in this concept, what he called the holy fool, which I'm not going to delve into. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I thought and he was an st- interesting, strange guy anyway. Um, but um, I, I think you're right. You take this into the next verse because ex- exhibit A is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and yet with all that wisdom, he didn't end well. Now, again, he wrote this, I believe, toward the end of his life, if not, you know, and so I think, I think he redeemed I hate to say redeemed himself because that's not a biblical term. But anyway, I think he, he came to his senses. It was almost like the prodigal son that came to his senses after waking up in the pig pen, right? Um, which is an interesting thing to think about. Maybe the prodigal son does speak about Solomon. That's just for free. I'll just leave it there. Anyway, um, he would just be one, but one example of the prodigal, right? But what advantage does a wise person have over the fool? And, and, knowing, and what does the poor person have knowing how to walk before the living? And then not, the third parable, what, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind or vanity. What the eye sees is better than the soul desires. That's almost like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What's that? (laughs) Well, (sighs) 
Yeah, they have potential. <laughs> yeah, the two in the bush have potential, but the bird in the hand is a sure thing. Because what the eyes see, in other words, that which is in front of you, is better than what the soul. Interesting, I, 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 I didn't look this up. I should have caught this. Nine in the Septuagint. In verse 9 in the Septuagint, I bet it's the same word, suke. Um, but, and it's comparing the dreamer with the one who, who's dealing with his reality. So then verse 10, whatever exists has already been named, and what is known uh, what man is, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute the one who is mightier than he Ten is very difficult. Some One commentator tried to tie it back to Adam uh, because the word man in the, this passage, in these three verses at the end, the word man appears six times. It is the Hebrew word Adam from which we get our English name Adam, right? And he tried to tie it into Adam naming the animals and all that, but but the interesting thing about it is who can dispute with the one who is mightier than he? Who is that talking about? I think it's talking about God. The one who, you know, so can we argue with God? Sometimes I think it might be the most spiritual thing you can do. I'm going to leave that with you. Now, it doesn't go well. Let's not do it long term. Let's not make a career out of it. Uh, Job is an incredible example of this. Job 42. Um, there's Jacob, right? But that, that, that okay, that takes us back to verse 7 of chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes. Using the word soul instead of appetite. Because he labored all night, didn't he, did he not? And, and he prevailed by surrendering. And it, that, that, was his, that was like his conversion moment. That was like his, the best moment. That was, that was where he began to really walk with God. Um, Job, that's where I was going. I'm almost done. Is that okay, Tim? <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I have a friend that in my doctoral program, he started every sentence when he spoke with Will. Now... And, you, and we, we text each other. We're in like a group text. And you can tell he uses the voice recognition program because he will text us. And ev- almost every text that he sends to us starts with, well, so, because he's using a voice recognition program and he's not aware of it. Anyway, um, I think it's funny. Okay, Job 42. Um, then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 1, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. 
you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And the thing is, is in the earlier chapters, um, had he not argued with God, he probably would not have come to this conclusion. So I answered that. At least that's my thought on this. I have heard of you by the hearing of your, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. All right. He wrestled with someone mightier than him when he lost the battle. But in losing, in submitting, in surrendering, he won. Same thing with Jacob that you mentioned earlier at the River Jabbok. And, um, and then it says, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a person? That's a tough question to ask. Uh, many words which increase futility. Um, and we, we read earlier that, you know, you know, therefore let your words be few. And, and in, in, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think that means even more than we even comprehend at times. Um, for who knows what is good for a person during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a person what will happen to him under the sun? So he's asking questions without answering them. And again, as I talked about it, talked about it tonight a couple of times, talked about it two weeks ago and I think even slightly before that. These, these are questions that are brought to us so that we give. For, this, is, this is incredible prayer material. Does that make sense? These are incredible verses to pray back to God that in hearing his still small voice, he will start to give you greater context to how these things are to be understood in the context of your own lives. So this is where it becomes highly personal, um, deeply personal. And, And to me is when in wrestling before God with these questions that wisdom begins to be developed in your own soul. Wisdom doesn't come by just you waking up one morning and being a wise person. I think wisdom comes from having situations that you don't understand people, places, and things that you don't understand, and then you begin to work through them, through the guidance and through prayer, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and through praying through these things and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you and separating the chaff from your own heart from the wheat that the Holy Spirit desires to develop in you. Does that make sense?